I believe this is, what, week three of Gifts of Grace, and we're not going to talk about the gifts again today. We're going to talk about them next week and the week after. So the last two weeks, we're going to look at the gifts the Holy Spirit has given to, to his church, to the body of Christ, for the mutual upbuilding and for the, and for the advancement of the gospel. And so we're going to look at that next week. This, the service gifts we'll look at next week. And the, the, the vocal gifts we'll look at in, on the 24th. So be looking for that. But this morning, we are going to have kind of the final introductory message before we get to the gifts as the text is kind of building this up in Romans 12. And, and I've titled this message this morning, Humility, the Essential Ingredient. Humility, the Essential Ingredient. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you this morning for the privilege of opening your word And even as we just heard Pastor Matt even express from his heart just this love, this desire to to read your word, to study your word. And we see that in LWC men and in LWC women and all the other ministries and even the LWC seniors that just got started this morning. Um, And we just thank you for for your word, that we're able to study it so that we can grow into Christ-likeness and so that we can become more like Christ each and every day. And we thank you for the special moment that we are in right now, which is the moment where we as a body open your word and we're taught from your word. And I just thank you, God, that you're going to do your work. And I pray, Lord, that you would help me this morning to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So how many of you have a recipe that was verbally handed down to you by your grandmother verbal recipe how many of you took that verbal recipe the first time and you went to cook it and and you put this ingredient and that ingredient and you trying to remember all the details of your grandmother's recipe let's just say it was your grandmother's gumbo recipe right and so you you're working on your roux just like you remember her telling you or maybe you watched her make it and So you're working on your visual memory of watching your grandmother cook that gumbo and you're working on the verbal memory of of what she told you was the ingredients and how she did her roux. And so you're working on your roux and and you're stirring that flour and that oil and you're stirring it low and slow for a long time. And then you're adding your onions and your your meat and and, and you're you're cooking that gumbo and and then you you finish it and you sit at the table and and you serve it and you taste it. And you built it up that you were cooking grandma's recipe. And you sat down and you took a, a spoonful of that gumbo. And, and you realized when you took the, the bite and others that were at the table, they didn't want to tell you because they didn't want to hurt, hurt your feelings. But you realized, wait a minute, this does not taste like grandma's gumbo. You didn't taste like it. And maybe perchance it was because you're missing the essential ingredient. You were missing that ingredient there. And the problem is not, is not necessarily that you're losing your mind and your memory. The problem is, is that your grandmother had a certain type of recipe. I think most of all grandmas have this type of recipe. It's called a this and a that recipe. She puts a little bit of this and a, a little bit of that. And, and, and she doesn't know exactly how much of this and that she puts in it. But that's what she does. And so we're doing our best to figure out a this and a that recipe, but, but we miss that essential ingredient or that essential amount of the essential ingredient. Maybe we have the essential ingredient, but we didn't put a little, we, we, we didn't put enough or we put too much and ended up not tasting like we remember. So we, we can all relate to that. What was interesting about Romans 12, 
I believe that the Apostle Paul gives us the essential ingredient for the Christian life. For all of life. But in particular, the Christian life. And for sure, life in the church. And that essential ingredient, which you guys know what it is, right? Humility. He, he has written it down for us. We don't have to have verbal memory. We don't have to, we don't have to figure out and, and see if we can remember it or, or, or we can always go back to God's word and figure out the essential ingredient for life in the church is humility. And we see this in Romans 12. And as he is building up into talking about the gifts that God has given his church for their mutual upbuilding, that we would all have a unique part to play. He first begins to talk about this essential ingredient. He's building this up. And humility is that ingredient. And we will look at verses 3 through 5 of Romans 12. And we will see that humility is essential for us to be able to glorify God in our life and in the church. Humility is essential. And so if I were to tell you what the main point of this sermon is, I'm going to have kind of three sub points that we're going to look at. But the, the main point of the sermon would be this, that Christ-like humility is the essential ingredient that fuels unity and kingdom advancement in the church. Christ-like humility is the essential ingredient that is like fuel to the individual Christian, to the body of Christ, that fuels unity and kingdom advancement in the church and through the church. We won't have kingdom advancement in the church and through the church unless we have unity, and we won't have unity unless we have humility. Humility is the key ingredient. So let's look at the text. Before next week, we we talk about the service gifts. And the week after that, we talk about the vocal gifts. Let's look at Romans 12 as we're building through this. We talked about mercy last week. What's our motivation to do anything for God? Because of his great mercy. Because of his great mercy. Do Do you know your why? That's what we talked about last week. Do you know your why? Our why for everything is I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you would present your lives as a living sacrifice. And now we pick up. We're going to we're going to jump over verse two, but I'm going to come back to it in just a few moments here. But let's look at Romans 12, starting in verse three. It says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one uh, one, uh, uh, one another. So, in these verses, we see three things. And this is what we're going to unpack. We're going to see what we need. We're going to see what is our temptation. And we're going to see what God has designed. What we need, what is our temptation, And what has God designed for us? So let's look back at verse 3 that I just read. For by the grace given to me, I say, everyone, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So what is it that we need? The first thought we see straight from the text, humility is what we need. Humility is what we need. And it's interesting, Paul starts out. If you remember last week, we talked about how Paul did not start out by saying, I want you to listen to me and, I, and, and I'm coming and appealing to you to, pre- to present yourselves as a living sacrifice because I'm telling you as an apostle to do that. But it's interesting, he, he does it here. He says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. 
And this grace that he has been given clearly could mean, and I think it does mean, the grace that we all have in salvation. But he is specifically talking about the grace of apostleship, the gifting that God has given him as an apostle of the church. He's saying, I'm coming to you, and as an apostle, I am asking you in the church that each individual would not think of himself or herself more highly than they ought to think of himself. He says, I say to everyone among you. So he's speaking to the church. He's speaking to individual Christians, but he's speaking to the church. And he's saying, don't think this way. He's saying, don't think in a certain way. Don't think in a certain way. Now, let's, I didn't read verse 2, but, but how, how we think matters. And in verse 2, remember what verse 2 says. It says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so Paul is saying before he says that I don't want you to think a certain way. He says that we have to be transformed by the renewal of our mind because our mind needs to be renewed because of the, the influences of the culture and the world that are upon us. And so he says, do not think this way. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So how, how could we describe if we were to describe the world's way of thinking, how could we describe the world's way of thinking? I think I thought about how I could describe this, and, and this is the, what, I, what came to my mind when I look at the world today. What I think of is a, a two, two words, radical individualism. That's what I think of in our world today. That the world is committed, the culture is committed to radical individualism. Meaning that we are the center of our existence. That we are the center of our reality. And, and life is about you. And everything that the world and culture is pointing us towards is centers, is centers around you and your desires and, and your beliefs and how you feel and your feelings and your ideas and your desires. And it's all about you. Right. I mean, that, that, all, every commercial that you watch on TV centers around you and a product that would make your life better and a service that would make your life better. And and the movies that we watch and the, the TV shows that we watch are centered around you and your experiences and the messages that are being taught to our kids or that that you are the center of the universe. And 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 it's all about how you feel, how you identify what 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 your perspective is. And there's no idea. There's not a, a, a consistent message of. Of, of others and service and unity and love and peace. It's all about you and what you want and you desire. And so why is it that we think we, why is it that we, or I should say we shouldn't be shocked that we see that the individual people that are raised in a culture that they're told that life revolves around them. It's no shock that we see the chaos we see in our world. We see the violence and we see the anger and the hatred that is spewed out all over our world today. It's because we have radical individualism as the message that is pressed into us. And so, Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so Paul is contrasting. He's saying the world is going to point in this direction. But I'm telling you in verse 3, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. The world is going to press into you this reality that you are the center of your universe and that all that matters is what you think and what you feel. Paul is saying, don't think of yourself the way the worldly culture thinks. Paul is saying here that we need to think about ourselves correctly. Don't think about yourself more highly than you ought to think. 
And I think God's word shows us and God's word is telling us is that our tendency is to think more highly of ourselves. I mean, that's my tendency. That's your tendency. When we're at our weakest moment, when we're when we're not acting like Christ, most of the time it's because we're being self-centered. Our self is at the center. And so when we're when we're rude, when we're irritable, when we're angry at our wife, at our kids, we're angry at somebody in the church or whatever relationship we may be in. It's because we have placed ourselves at the center and we're the center of our universe and something that they said, something that they did, something that I didn't get, something that I, I feel like I wanted to say, whatever it is that, that the center of my life, which is myself, has been upset. And so then I lash out and, and I throw a fit. And, and this is our tendency. Our tendency is towards self-centered thinking. But I, I think we can't miss the context of what Paul is speaking here to. There's so many applications in our every area of our life, but the context is the local church. He's speaking to Christians in a local assembly. This is the context of life in the church that we would not be self-centered, but that we would be others-centered. That humility would be the essential ingredient of our life. I love what Warren Wearsby says about this from Romans 12. He says, what is wrong is a tendency to have a false evaluation of ourselves. Nothing causes more damage in a local church than a believer who overrates himself. And tries to perform a ministry that he cannot do. Sometimes the opposite is true. And people undervalue themselves. Both attitudes are wrong. Both attitudes are wrong. Humility is the essential requirement for usefulness in the kingdom of God. Humility is what we need. And we see this all over scripture. We see this call all over scripture for us to be humble. And I could have listed scripture after scripture and and gone over all these different texts throughout the Bible that are pointing us towards humility. But one that stands out to me, and we've heard it over and over again at different times and different seasons of our life as we've studied the Gospels. But the disciples give us a great example of how not to do things, don't they? Of how not to approach things. And and, and there's a couple of sections, a few sections in in the Gospels. But we're going to look at Mark 9. The the disciples were arguing amongst themselves about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of Christ, in the kingdom of God. And again, context. They believed Jesus was establishing an earthly kingdom. So for them, when they're arguing amongst themselves about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom, they're not thinking about a heavenly kingdom. They're thinking about Jesus on the throne. And he's going to have somebody on his right and somebody on his left who's going to be assistants and and leaders in his kingdom and they're thinking position power influence they want to be a part of the kingdom they want to have a position and they're thinking hey we're part of his 12 right now we have an inside track and so they're arguing amongst themselves they are all being self-centered and they're arguing about their place in the kingdom of christ and listen to mark 9 they came to capernaum Verse 33, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? I just, I just love an omniscient God asking a question. Like, that's just funny to me. Like, he knows, and they're going to figure out slowly that he knows what they're talking about, and I mean, he knows their thoughts. What were you, what were you discussing? But they kept silent. It wouldn't, it that be what, what you would do if an omniscient God asked you a question? You'd be like, okay, you know. <laughs> but they kept silent. For, But they were a little embarrassed is why I think they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. I love this about Jesus too. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. Must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child. 
He took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. Oh, I love this. It's such a good picture. Our Lord teaches such great lessons. So these high-minded, high-minded, self-centered thinking people, uh, these disciples, Paul is he's addressing them in Romans 12. Like it, it, this is being played out. What he addresses in Romans 12 for high-minded, high-thinking Christians of today, he's, this is what is playing out in the lives of the disciples. They're fighting for position, arguing about power. You know, it's, it's interesting. People often fight for what they think they deserve. They fight for what they think they deserve. And this is what we see. And, and what does Jesus do? He says, whoever would be last will be first. Whoever seeks to be last will be first. The first will be last. The servant of all is the one that's going to be the greatest. And then he grabs a child. He picks up a child. Can you, can you see Jesus? He picks up a child. He, he carries it. He holds that child in the middle of all of them. And he points to the child and says, this is what the kingdom of God is like. I love this visual aid. He's making a point. And this is the whole context of what he's trying to communicate. They were arguing about who was going to be the greatest. He tells them that the greatest will be the one that is a servant. And he picks up a child. And in essence, he's saying, here's a visual picture of what it would look like for you to be a part of my kingdom. You want to be a part of my kingdom in your way. You want to be a part of my kingdom doing things the way that you want to do them. Serving the way that you want to serve. But I'm telling you that if you want to be a part of my kingdom, you have to do it my way. And my way looks like this child. That smelly, stinky, dirty, cute, cuddly little child. I don't know how old the child was. But think about that, right? So what is Jesus communicating when he's picking up the child? I think this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying you would count this child as insignificant. When it comes to the matters of the kingdom. But receiving this child is like receiving me. Right? You would look at this child and they would have looked at that child and thought insignificance. Let's not listen and worry about a child. We have important adult things to talk about. Who's going to be on the right and who's going to be on the left and who's going to take care of the money. Judas had that figured out, didn't he? He knew his place. He was going to take care of the money bag. Ended up being a thief and a betrayer. I think Jesus also was saying this when he picked up the child. He's saying this. You think that you are more important than this child. But this child represents the humility that is necessary for those who are a part of my kingdom. And that's what he says. Look, he says this in another gospel, Matthew 18. That's what Jesus is saying. You think you're more important than this child, but this child represents the humility that is necessary for those who are to be a part of my kingdom. He says this in Matthew 18. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Not profound. That's why our children's ministry is so important. That's why training and raising our kids and valuing them and honoring them is so important. That's why it's such a big part of what we do because this kingdom is about every age and every stage and there's something unique and precious about the humility and the vulnerability of a child that is connected with how we must respond to the kingdom of God. So often we think we have it all figured out. I've been in church all of my life and I've heard all the sermons and, and Pastor Ben, I've heard messages on, on humility. I've heard probably 30 of them. 
I've probably heard 30 of them, and I'm preaching one right here, right? We get so old and, and, and mature, and, and we get past things, but, but what is it about a child? You can, you can just keep coming back over things over and over again with them, and, and there, there's just such a sense of awe and wonder about new things and learning, and right? There's a heart of humility and vulnerability that Jesus is pointing to. And that vulnerability, I think, comes from a heart of humility. This sense of, of being in awe of who God is and his provision for our life and what he's done for us and in us. James 4, 6 says this, that, but he, he gives more grace speaking of God. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the, to the humble, to those that come like a child. J. Oswald Sanders, I love what he says about those who are prideful. He says this, nothing is more distasteful to God than self-conceit. The first and fundamental sin, in essence, aims at enthroning self at the expense of God. Pride is a sin of whose presence its victim is least conscious. I want to read that again. That is so good and so true. And we're all guilty of it. Are we not? How often are we confronted with prideful words and thoughts and, 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 and we, don't, we, we don't know we're guilty, right? Listen, listen, pride is a sin of whose presence its victim is least conscious. In essence, that's what pride is, right? Self-deception. Humility is what we need. It is the essential ingredient in our life and is the essential ingredient in the body of Christ. A picture of that would be like this. It would be like the, the preacher who preached what he thought was the most powerful exposition of Scripture in the history of humanity. <laughs> he just thought he had nailed it and knocked it out the park. He preached a powerful exposition of the Gospel of John. And he finishes his message and he walks off the stage. And, and he has somebody there that would agree with him. His number one fan, Mrs. Franklin. Mrs. Franklin comes up and says, Pastor, I just want to tell you, you are becoming one of the greatest expositors of this generation. And as, as Ms. Franklin's given this great compliment to Pastor so-and-so, his head just starts to expand just a little bit. It's almost like he could start floating off the stage. He's like he's filled with helium. And he, he's feeling so good about himself. He, he thought he did a good job, and Ms. Franklin confirmed that he did a really good job of teaching that scripture. So as he gets his family ready, and they're headed into the car, he squeezes his head into the car, the driver's seat he sits down in the driver's seat and his weary wife has been trying to run after the kids while he's preaching a sermon. She sits in the front seat. The kids squeeze in the back. And he just wants to talk about the compliment he got from Miss Franklin. He doesn't want to talk about what he thought about the sermon, but certainly his wife would be really interested in hearing what Miss Franklin had to say. So he decides to speak up on the ride home. He says, you know what? Miss Franklin told me that I was one of the greatest expositors of this generation. Silence. Just silence. Nothing was being said. He waits for a little while and he, he waits for a little while and he can't help himself. A couple of minutes have passed and he has to break the silence again. He's longing for affirmation from his wife and so he breaks through again and, 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 and he says, Honey, I, I just wonder how many great expositors are there in this generation? And his wife finally speaks up and says, One less than you might think, my dear. <laughs> Humility is what we need. 
Paul says, I say to you, every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think with sober judgment. So, so how do we practice this? How do we live this out? What's the application for us? It's simple. The application is straightforward. Pray for humility. Pray that we would be humble. And, 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 and our, the prayer should be also that, that we would humble ourselves. God, help me to humble myself. Because trust me, we will either humble ourselves or God will humble us. And, and, and I think may we walk in humility in every situation and relationship we're called to. This is the application. It's hard to walk in humility when we think we're right or we know we're right. Sometimes you can know you're right and you can be right, but you can be wrong. You can know you're right and you can have all your facts, but you can be wrong because of how you wielded that truth in a relationship. Humility is what we need. We need humility in our lives and amongst ourselves in the church. Why? Why do we need humility? So, so, so we started with the need. Now we're going to move to the temptation. We need humility. It is our need. We desperately need it because we are being bombarded with messages from our world that are pointing towards self-centered living. We need humility. We need to pray to be humble. Why? Point two, because division is our temptation. Division is our temptation. Look back at the text. He says in verse 3, I, 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 I ask that all of you would think, not think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think. Verse 4, for as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. We have one body, right? So think of the physical body. And I have many members. I got fingers and I got toes and I have arms and I have legs. I have a nose. I have eyes. I have ears. I have one body, but I have many members. And all the members do not have the same function. My hands and my eyes and my feet and my toes are all different. They have different functions. One body, many members. And I don't think it's an accident that, that Paul calls for humility before he begins to describe the diversity of the church. He calls for humility before he starts to talk about how we have one body but many members with different functions. He says you need to be humble because there is diversity and we're all different. If we were one body with many members who all had the same function, it would be easy, wouldn't it? Or if we were one body with many members who all thought the same way, we'd be robots and we'd have no problem. If we were one body with many members who all had the same beliefs on secondary doctrines, man, that would be peachy cream right there. Church would be easy. We all, we all agree on secondary doctrines. We would have little struggle with humility and unity. But, but, it's a big but here. What does the text say? It says we are one body with many members and the members do not have the same function. We do not have the same function. It points to the differences and the different giftings and different thoughts and ideas and the, 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 the different uh, 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 giftings and things that God has placed in us for the use in the body. And so it's these differences that make things challenging. It's that I think certain ways and you think certain ways and, and, and we have unity in certain areas. We have di- diversity in other areas and this is what makes life in the body of Christ difficult and this is why we need humility because division is our temptation. I mean, just think about marriage. Just think about marriage. How many of you know that when you are dating somebody, you believe that you have so many things in common? And you probably do, but you think we are so much alike. We're so much alike. And then you get married and you start living with that person. 
and you realize, oh my goodness, who did I marry? Who is this person? I thought I knew them. (laughs) They are so different than what I thought. And you realize that you thought you married a saver, but he he was actually a spender. You thought you married somebody who woke up early, but he, he really liked to sleep in. Right? And you realize opposites attract and, and differences is what bring division. So humility is what we need because division is our temptation. And the Apostle Paul, I love, so, so, so just this picture of the body and the different members, I love the visual aid he gives us in 1 Corinthians 12. So he talks about this in short in Romans 12, but he goes in detail in 1 Corinthians 12. It's a lengthy section, but I want us to, to read it and just let it speak to us. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, if the feet started talking, the feet of the body started talking. Hey, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should start talking, because I'm not an eye, I do not, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body, is what we were saying earlier, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? I love verse 18. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. Isn't that so good? If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. Now, here's our call. So so we do have these separations of differences of giftings. And and here's the call. Verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. Those kids that we think are the weaker and indispensable ones, disciples. Look, look at this child. This is what it looks like to be a part of the kingdom. Those people that we want to overlook and think they're indispensable or weaker. They're actually Or we think they're dispensable. They're actually indispensable. And in those parts of the body, we think less honor, but we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. Verse 24, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body. The temptation is division, that there may be no division in the body, that that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Isn't that good? It's a picture of how the body should function. So what stands out from this picture? Each member has a unique place in the body. Every one of you has a unique place in the body of Christ. Have you found your place? You have a unique place. Secondly, God arranges the function of each member as he chooses. Thirdly, no one member is greater in value or function than any other member. We so often think that those who have more of a vocal leadership in the church, that they have greater value, but that is not true. That's not what God's word says. Here's another thing we learn from this picture. God has ordered his body in such a way that there would be no division among us. That, that if we will walk in humility, there would be no division among us. And we wouldn't look at those who, who have gr- what seemingly look like greater positions, that they're greater than anyone else. That there would be no division. Here's another thing we learn from this picture. As interdependent members of Christ's body, we should seek to care for one another. That's what, that's what we learn. When one member suffers, we all suffer. When one member rejoices, we all rejoice. We should seek to care for one another. 
But because we are not fully sanctified yet, division is our temptation. And that's our struggle. That will continually be your struggle. I don't care what church you go to. If you're just passing through Living Word Church, if you're just coming through here and you're going to another church and you're going to not be here for a little while and and maybe you're going to enter a season in this church where you get offended and you feel like that somebody uh, doesn't value you or you're being overlooked and and, and you think, well, I'm going to go to another church to to, 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 maybe maybe it's at that church that I'm going to find my place and I'll be able to be a part and they're going to recognize me and love me and serve me and, and care for me. I just want you to know that no matter what church you go to, because churches are filled with, un, with, 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 with not perfectly sanctified people and people that are in process of sanctification. Whether it's Living Word or whatever church you would go to in town, you will end up finding the same temptation, which is division. Because we don't always say things as we should. We do hurt. We do offend. We do get angry and we do lash out and we do get bitter and we do have struggles but the need is for humility that there would be no division but that we would be humble and we'd be unified together have you ever seen the movie remember the titans you ever seen that movie it's a wonderful movie i encourage you to watch that movie if you've never seen it there was the issue uh, um being dealt with in that movie is what's was, was racism. And you have, it's a, based on a true story, and you have Denzel Washington as the head coach, and he's coming into an era of, se- of segregation, and segregation gets lifted, and now they, they're bringing in African-American football players mixing into an all-white football team. And, and it's just a wonderful story to see what happens when that division begins to be torn down and, and the unity that develops through the course of a season, but it's hard work to break through that division. And there's one, one highlight of, of a scene in the movie that's very compelling and impactful. So they're working through this division. That is a temptation for all of us. And you have, on offense, you have this African-American quarterback. He was clearly the most gifted quarterback on the team. And so he's a quarterback, and you have a white tight end. His name is Ray, and Ray, Ray was having a hard time integrating. He was a hard time going along with this because he had some built-in racism that he learned from his parents and from his family. And so, Rev was the name of the quarterback. That was his nickname was Rev. And so Rev's under center. And before the center goes down, the center looks out onto the field and, and he looks at the defense and he realizes the play that they called was not the right play and that they needed to make an audible. So the center makes an audible. And you see it in the movie, he makes an audible and everyone recognizes the audible. And Ray, in that moment, realizes that he has an opportunity to hurt this quarterback because he doesn't like him. And so Ray is supposed to pick up a block on a different spot that he was supposed to pick up a block on the previous play. So the quarterback hikes the ball and Ray stands still when he should be engaging. And as a result of that, the linebacker gets through and tackles Rev and injures Rev and he's almost out for the entire season. And when you think about the game of football, you think about unity and you think about the necessity of a brother needing another brother and, and, and this quarterback, whatever team you're on, that, that quarterback needs that offensive line to be unified and together and, and he needs his tight end and his running back if there's a certain play he needs them to be unified and together and there doesn't need to be any division among them and the picture of Ray with his with his division, his divided heart, and his hurt and his anger towards, towards Rev, caused him to do something to see that Rev would get hurt. And that is the picture of what division does. 
when, when unity is needed, when we, when we lash out in our hurt, we lash out in our anger, and we get hurt at each other in the body of Christ, we start functioning in ways that hurt one another. So, so how do we live this out? How do we fight against this temptation towards division? Here, here's, here's some questions we have to ask ourselves. Do we have division in the relationships God's called us to? Where is there division in your life right now? Is it in your family? In your marriage? Maybe it's on your job. Maybe it's with your kids. Maybe it's in the church. Maybe somebody here has hurt you. Maybe I've hurt you. Maybe I've said things. Maybe I've not said things. Maybe I've done something. Maybe the staff. Maybe It could be anybody. It could be a number of reasons why we get offended or hurt in the church. And, and division is our temptation. The enemy wants to separate us. And, but we're called to resist that temptation of division. We're called to embrace humility. So what would humility tell us to do? Humility would tell us to pursue a reconciliation. The enemy in pride would tell us to stay divided, to allow the linebacker to come through and to hurt the one that hurt us, right? To hurt the one that we're angry at. The Holy Spirit through the Word of God tells us, no, humility says, which is what we need to fight division, humility says to pursue peace. To pursue those that have hurt us. To seek reconciliation. It says it in Romans 12. Later on in this exposition that Paul is giving the church. Look at Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty. But associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought. To do what is honorable in the sight of all. And here's the challenge right here. Division is our temptation. But here is what humility will do. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace. Live peaceably with all. Amen? Isn't that hard? Does anybody else find that difficult other than me? I find it so hard when I know I'm right and my wife's wrong to live peaceably with her. I find it hard to admit that I'm wrong. I find it hard to admit that I could have said something wrong or done something wrong. And I think my way is the right way. And that's my flesh. And that's our flesh. Humility is what we need because division is our temptation. And in our lives in the church, we need humility. Because the Lord wants to divide this church. And lastly, we saw the need. We see the temptation now. What is God's design? Look back at the text. Here's God's design. Verse 5. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. And individually members of one another. So the third thing we see here. Here's God's design. Unity is God's design. Humility is necessary. We need it. It's the essential ingredient in the life of the church. Division is our temptation. So we must pray for humility to work out our differences. Because unity is God's design. So we, though many, are one body in Christ. And we are individually members of one another. Unity is God's design. Diversity and differences unify together in one body. And they may be ugly at times and difficult at times. But unity and diversity mixed together make for a beautiful, a beautiful design that God's created. But notice, notice where our unity is centered on. Notice what it says. So we... Though many are one body, where? In Christ. 
one body in Christ. The unity that is God's design is, is precious because it is a unity that's not centered around one leader or on a, a, a strong personality. Our unity is not centered around me or the elders or any other leaders in the church. Our unity is not centered around each other. Our, unities are, our unity is centered around Christ. We are one body in Christ. Our unity has its foundation of the common experience that all of us as believers have, which is what? That we are saved by grace. We're saved by grace. And this is where humility really starts to flood back in. Just when we start thinking that we're better than we, than we really are and, and we, we have division with each other in the body of Christ, just when we think that, 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 that we, we're having these struggles with pride, the Lord reminds us, wait a minute, wait a minute. Remember who you were? Remember what I saved you from? Remember your struggles? You're, you're only here because you are saved by grace. And that person you're struggling with, they're only here because they are saved by grace. And you have that commonality that comes, that, that tells us that, uh, that, that, that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. Right? Our unity is not ambiguous. Our unity is not ethereal. Our unity as believers is centered around the truth of God's word and the work of Calvary. You know, there's so much talk in the world today for unity. But it's really a unity that comes from not agreeing on anything. It's, it's like, what can we not agree on and still come together? Right? It's a unity that's really a division. But as Christians, we have the most glorious thing that unifies us together. It is the cross of Christ. Our unity is centered on truth, on real truth. Christian unity is centered on Christ. And Jesus came, if it's centered on Christ, what did Jesus come to do? He came to preach truth about himself and the kingdom. So Christian unity, which is God's design, is centered on the truth about Christ. Anything less than that, or drifts from that, is not unity, but is rather a deadly combination of lies and agreement. Right? There's a, there's a quote by Charles Swindoll that I want to read. And he, he talks about the differences between union, uniformity, unanimity, and unity. Right? Humility is what we need. Division is our temptation. Unity is God's design. But what is unity? What is Christian unity? Well, here's what Charles Swindoll says. He says, unity has an affiliation with others, but no common bond that makes them one heart. Uniformity has everyone looking and thinking alike. Unanimity is complete agreement across the board. Unity, however, refers to a oneness of heart, a similarity of purpose, and agreement on major points of doctrine. That's unity, Christian unity. Our struggle, where division is our temptation, our struggle is that we are so quick to to divide over secondary doctrines and preferential reasons. As long as I've been a part of the church, I've been a Christian since I was... I prayed a prayer of salvation when I was five. That's why I love precious Elizabeth getting baptized today. How old was your daughter, Brian? Seven years old. I just love that. I confessed Christ at seven. I got baptized. I mean, five. I got baptized right after. And, and I've been a Christian a long time. I'm 41. And so I've been in church almost all of my life. I was in church in my mom's womb. And all the churches I've been a part of and being a part of this church and just walking in church... I think the, the single greatest thing that causes division in church is over secondary doctrinal issues. It's the single greatest reason that churches divide. 
And where we have so much in common, we so quickly divide over things that are not essential to the doctrine of salvation. And we get so often, we get, we plant our flags on our end times doctrine. And, and so if, if the church is not preaching what we think is right about the end times, I'm going to find a church that preaches what I think is right about the end times. And, 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 and the church is not preaching what I think is true about, about the Holy Spirit and, and tongues and prophecy. Well, I'm going to plant my flag and I'm going to go to church that, that's preaching that the way I want it to be preached. Or, 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 or I got the, or, or the church is, then we get into these preferences things. Well, well, the church is not doing this or not doing that. And I wish they did this, wish they did that. And I'm going to plant my flag on this and, and I'm going to divide over this and I'm going to go find a church that does it how I want it to be done, right? And this has been, this is the struggle of church and humanity because division is our temptation. But what we have in common is what should unify us together, which is the doctrine of salvation and the fact that Christ is the only way to salvation and it is the gospel message that saved us. It's the gospel message that keeps us and it's the gospel message that we declare to the, a lost and dying world. And while the church is divided on the inside, the world is dying on the outside, right? You get divided on the inside, the world's dying on the outside, laughing at our division. And, and listen, of all the people in the room to talk about doctrine, that doctrine matters. I believe doctrine matters. I believe it's important, and there are secondary doctrines I think are very important that we get accurate. And, but may we never, may we never, may we never divide over things that should never cause us to, to divide. May we allow humility to be the lens with which we see our relationship with each other. <clears throat> Pastor Ben Stewart says about dying churches, churches that die. He said, churches don't die because of someone attacking from the outside. Churches die because of, of a million little cuts from the inside. When I read that quote, I thought about what a million little cuts on the inside looks like. You guys ever played the telephone game? You, you know that game, right? You say something to one person who says it to the next person who says it to the next person. By the time you get to the end of the line, what you said at the beginning is completely different than what's at the end. We played that game. I think we should rename that game because that, you know, the telephone game gets played in the church. Here's what the name should be. It's the gossip game that church members play. That's that's the telephone game that church members, it's the sanctified gossip game, right? So we we say something here that, oh, do you you know what we heard? You wouldn't believe what we heard about so-and-so or or what Pastor Ben said or or what or what he believes. Can you believe that? Oh, my goodness. And you tell it to that person and it gets to this person. It gets to this person, that person. And next thing you know, like it's completely not even true or accurate. And there's no foundation or truth in it. Right. It's the it's the sanctified, unsanctified gossip game that church members play. The telephone game. A million little cuts from the inside. One person starts out and sows the seed of disunity and that person gives it to the next person and gives it to the next person and gives it to the next person, right? So, how can we apply this to our church and our life? Paul's got lots of answers, doesn't he? Listen to Apostle Paul address the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1. This is where humility comes back into picture. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and have the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. Chloe, Chloe was ratting out the church. 
Chloe came and it's been reported to Paul, the great apostle, by Chloe, so-and-so in the church, they're causing divisions and fights. There are people that are quarreling among you, my, my brothers. What I mean is that each of one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ, right? I, I follow this tribe, and I go after this tribe, and I follow, I follow this guy, and this guy, or that lady, or that lady, and I follow this person, right? What does Paul say here? Is Christ divided? So how will we be able to resist disunity and division? Humility is what we need. Have this mind, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That we would humble ourselves, that we would walk in humility and where there is division, that we wouldn't play the, the unsanctified telephone game in the church. Go to the source before you talk. Go to the source. Ask. Talk. Ask questions. Because certainly, if what you've heard has come through a few people, just like the telephone game, it's probably not accurate. Amen? We live in challenging days, don't we? As we conclude here. And it takes courage to stand on biblical truth. And the battle will only intensify. I just want you to know that. We're gonna, I'm going to do a series in the fall, second week of October. We're, we're going to pick back up in John in, in July. We're going to go... August and September, second week of October, we preach a series called How Then Shall We Live? How Then Shall We Live? Francis Schaeffer wrote a book in the 80s and 70s called How Then Shall We Live? And I'm going to touch on as many of the cultural topics that I can touch on in five weeks. As many of them that you think are hot button issues, we're going to talk about them in October. And we're going to answer the question, how then shall we live as Christians in the middle of this culture? So we're going to talk about that in October. We need each other is the short of the message. That's going, to be the end of the end, that's going to be the end of the series is that we need each other. We need each other. And so I want to conclude with this story. I told this story. If you were part of the church in 2019, you've already heard this illustration. But, for, but, but a lot of you have not been here in 2019. And if you were in 2019, you may not have been in the service. And if you were in the service, you may have forgotten. So I end with this story. There's a tiny little lion cub. A tiny, tiny little lion cub. I emphasize tiny. And there was a great, great, great big giant rhinoceros. Great, great, great big giant rhinoceros. Tiny, tiny little lion cub. And that tiny, tiny little lion cub is sitting on top of the great big giant rhinoceros who is dead. And the lion cub had killed the great giant rhinoceros and tiny lion cub was sitting on top of the rhinoceros eating its lunch, enjoying a little snack from what he was enjoying. And so this man walks up to the lion cub and is in awe that this little lion cub is sitting on top of this giant rhinoceros. And he asks the obvious question. He says, how did you kill this rhinoceros? The tiny little lion club sitting on top of the giant rhinoceros looks over at the man and said, it's simple. It's simple. I killed him with my club. I killed him with my club. And, and the man is like, don't find it. Your club? You're a tiny little rhinoceros. How big is your club? And the tiny lion cub looks at the man and says, it's simple again. We've got about a hundred of us in our club. 
We've got about 100 of us in our club. So I end with that. We need each other. Do you get it? We need each other. There's a lot of issues that we face in our world today. And we don't need division. Division is our temptation. We need each other. And the point is for us to not to fight the giant rhinoceros out there. The point is, 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 that, is that we would unify together so that we can preach truth to the issues of our culture and preach the gospel to a lost and dying world. It's the point. We need each other. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for your word. God, it is your word that is like a scalpel, like a surgeon's scalpel. So it says in Hebrews, it is a sword that cuts and it divides. It's living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And God, we've all been cut today. We've been cut with the skilled surgery of your word that points to the need of humility and the resistance of temptation and the call to unity. God, our toes have been stepped on as well. God, it is challenging to walk in humility because of our natural tendencies towards isolation and individualism and my rights and my ways. And God, my prayer is, is that we would resist that. My prayer is, is that we would look at the mission that is greater on the outside than the division that's on the inside. May we have a vision for the mission and, and not only just see a vision for our disagreements. May the, may the mission supersede our vision. That we may see what you've called us to. And we're going to look over the next couple of weeks of all the different ways you've called us to serve your body and to advance your kingdom. And I pray that, that we would grow in our Christ-likeness. I pray that we would recognize the ways in which we can serve your kingdom. And I pray, God, that if there is any division amongst us that we would be reconciled. I pray for peace in marriages and Peace in relationship with kids and peace on the job. And I pray, God, that as far as it, as far as it depends on us, that we would seek peace and pursue it. That we would not sit back in our disagreement and our offense, but that we would pursue reconciliation. Pursue to be understood and to understand. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I love you. I will see you next week.